If you're new, I want to welcome you to our weekly gathering here at the parks. What we do uh, in teaching is we preach through books of the Bible here at the Parks Church, and so we are making our way through the book of Hebrews. Book of Hebrews, and so if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9. All right, stand with me as we read Hebrews chapter 9. Yes, I'm going to be reading for a while, so let's get ready. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, it'll be on the screen behind me. Verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship in an earthly place of holiness, for a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. All right, clear so far? And Aaron's staff that was budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of, the, the, of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of these things. We, cannot, we can now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, but he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and by the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink in various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Verse 11, but... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with, with hands, that is, not of his creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Therefore, he is the mediator. That's right. Now we're getting into this. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant or the old covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For, all, for a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves 
with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into the holy place made with hands, which are copies of true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood, not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated and I'm going to take a drink. Woo! Did y'all get that? Can we just pray and go home? All right? Like I said, we're going to cover a lot of territory. Um, One of the central problems that Christianity claims to deal with is guilt. That's pretty much the whole premise of the gospel and what it's built on, right? We as believers acknowledge we are guilty, and Christ has dealt with that guilt. And so this morning, if you're taking notes, I want you to write in your notebook or wherever you're taking notes the word guilt or guilty. You see, when people say guilt, they usually mean what you feel when you've done something wrong. You ever been there? Maybe you're there right now. And uh, a theologian and counselor who I respect makes a distinction between overt guilt and covert guilt. Maybe a better way to say it is guilt versus shame. There is a distinction, even though I think the birthplace of the two are, are the same. There is a distinction between guilt and shame. Overt guilt is when you know you've done something wrong, right? And you feel guilty about it, right? You, you've, you've made a mistake, you've sinned, you've said something, you did something, and you, you, you feel this, this, this guilt. And I'm sure there are a number of people in here who struggle with that. All of us... Um, All of that is overt guilt, pretty straightforward. Then there's this other one, the covert guilt, right? Shame. Now, it's a little more sneaky, is it not? It's a little bit more under the surface. It's it's this sense, and this is the way this theologian and counselor describes it, covert guilt, is this sense by which we all have that we know that something is wrong. Not, 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 Not that we've just done things wrong, right? We don't have a sinning problem. We have a sin problem. Sinning is what flows from our heart of sin, right? And so there's this shame. There's this covert guilt. And I've been thinking about this ever since Sam brought up uh, two weeks ago in our Whole Life Discipleship series that scene in the garden, Genesis chapter 3, right? Where prior to Genesis chapter 3 in the fall, Adam and Eve, they they are, the Bible says they're they're, they're what? They're naked and, and unashamed. And then sin enters the world, and the first effect of their sin is what? Shame. Shame over their nakedness. Now, now they were naked before they sinned, but it seems to me that in Genesis, when I read that or I see that, right, that their nakedness didn't bother them. Why? Why didn't it bother them prior to Genesis chapter 3? Because they were clothed in something else. They were clothed in the perfection of God's love and acceptance and approval. 
And now what sin does when it enters the world and enters into there, into that scene in Genesis chapter 3, is it strips them away from that. And guess what they felt? Again, shame. They felt and knew that they were naked. And so Sam talked about what they did in response to that. What did they do? They, they sewed together fig leaves and covered themselves. And we have been forever since then trying to sew fig leaves and cover our shame and our guilt trying to to shoo away that sense and that feeling, right? But with what? Artificial means and measures. Things that cover our physical bodies that really can't answer the heart issue of guilt and shame. And so hear me, even, even if you're in this room and you don't believe in God, first, I'm so glad that you're here. Or maybe you're skeptical of this whole thing. So glad that you're here. Even if you, you find yourself in that place, this is still true. If you're honest of yourself, if you're honest with your, where, where, where your heart is at, you feel these things all the time. Guilt and shame. You say, Kyle, how do you know that? Well, one, I've experienced it myself. I've experienced it with many of you, right? Even before you came to Christ or even many of you who are Christ followers, I've experienced it with you. I've also experienced it in the culture that we swim in, Right? just being an observer of the times, that guilt and shame, they're pervasive. They go throughout, even Forbes magazine, right? A magazine about money, not, not that long ago, had a whole section in, in, in an article written, six signs you are suffering from guilt and probably don't know it. This is in Forbes, okay? Identifying guilt, going, you probably have guilt and you don't know it. And here's six signs. That, you wanna know what the six signs were? Listen to this. Close relationships that don't last. And they went on to describe how you probably have deep wounds and deep satisfactions that people can't get close to you because they might touch that wound. You're chronically tired and distracted. Now, this is not just talking about like your physical weariness, right? Even though I think it does lead to that. But this is talking about how heavy of a burden it is to carry around shame and guilt. It's a heavy burden. Third, you joke harshly at others' expenses, thinking that in tearing them down, you will some way feel better. Fourth, you respond dramatically to other people's criticism of you. Five, you're paranoid about what everyone's thinking about you because you project the bad things you think about yourself onto them. And last one, they put, you sabotage your own efforts. At work, in relationships, yada, yada, Yada. Anybody live there? Anybody guilty of those things? You see, all of this goes back to the garden. All of this goes back to our soul nakedness, a sense of guilt, a sense of guilt before God that you and I carry around. And so hear me, your mind might deny that there's a God, but your heart knows very well that there is. And what happens with this sense of guilt, it drives us. It strains our relationships. It destroys these pieces and components to our life. But then, by the grace of God, we have chapters in our Bible like Hebrews 9. And Hebrews 9 tells us exactly what God does with our guilt and shame. And so that's what we're going to study this morning over 28 verses. And I'm going to key in on, on one verse particularly. But we've got some, uh, um, and 
some, some heavy sledding, right? Fitting analogy, right? So, so some heavy sledding here. Did anybody else get the sled this weekend? I am sore from pushing my kids down a hill that doesn't really exist about 400 times. Um, so if I pass out, that's why, okay? Verses 1 through 12, um, this is really, we could say from even last week, this is part two of the New Covenant uh, discussion here in Hebrews. Uh, verses 1 through 12, uh, the author of Hebrews, remember, he's uh, talking to a Jewish audience, a Jewish Christian audience. And so many of the things that I just read and that we picked up on in Hebrews 9 are completely foreign to us. That's why we, like, even, that's why I wanted to read the whole chapter to us so we could be like, what are you talking about? Hyssop and a lot of blood conversation, a lot of these, like, what is, what is going on? To the audience of Hebrews, they would have been clicking on all cylinders going, yep, 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 know that, know that, know that. And so that's why we have to do a little bit more uh, hard work, if you will, a little bit heavier lifting to understand what's going on here. But it's important to us as new covenant Christians to understand the old, right? Because the new is the fulfillment of the old. And if you don't know the, the, the old, I'm convinced you, you, you don't know the beauty, the full beauty of the new covenant in Jesus Christ, okay? So let's, let's, let's do a little bit of heavy lifting here. So the, the first uh, 12 verses, uh, the, the author of Hebrews is going through a description of the Old Testament or, or Old Covenant sacrificial system. And he's describing again what I built out last week uh, of this tabernacle or the temple. And here he's going to focus in on, if you will, some furniture found within the tabernacle. Okay, last week we just looked at the tabernacle as a whole. Now he kind of lasers in to look at some specific things. And do you remember last week in Hebrews chapter 8, what did he say about the tabernacle? That it was a shadow, right? A type, a picture that is ultimately found its fulfillment in who? In, in Christ, right? And so that's why it's like, don't go back to the old ways, but look at the old ways as being fulfilled in Christ. So this is, I want, I want to give, give me the first picture there. This was, is a picture, okay? It's not to scale, obviously, and things like that. But this is a picture of the tabernacle that, that, that we're going to talk about uh, this morning. And, and particularly, there are three things in here that I want us to look at that, that we find, you know, and it talks about two sections. So you see that curtain that you can see behind? That separates the holy place from the holy of holies, okay? To the left side of the curtain is the holy of holies. That place was where the literal presence of God dwelled on the mercy seat, okay? And there was only one person, the high priest, who could go in there once a year, all right? And I'm going to describe that scene. But outside of that is the holy place. And you see three things. So go to the next picture. You see, right outside of this veil is the, uh, the table of incense that was talked about in Hebrews 9. This incense was a place that would constantly burn to represent the prayers or petitions or worship of the people of God continually ever before the Lord or Yahweh. But it not only served as that, it also served actually as a second barrier. So you see the curtain, this stood in front of the curtain. So the curtain, this thick, massive curtain, shielded the people, right, uh, from all the other days of the year fr from the presence of God. But this table of incense also sh shielded them, right? So presence, worship, ever before God the Father. Do you remember earlier in Hebrews what we talked about Jesus? What is he doing right now? Remember I asked that question and Hebrews answered it. What is Jesus doing right now? Remember that? Yeah. Interceding for you and me ever before the Father, always interceding, right? So you see this picture always burning, always making this incense. And then you have this weird candle holder looking thing over here known as the lampstand. 
And so you see it over here on the left. And the reason it is that weird shape is because, and I mentioned this last week, it's meant to represent the tree of life in the garden, okay? So that's why it has this appearance and, and this look. And so it was lit day and night as a, remi- a reminder of God's continual presence with his people. What is the message from the old covenant to the new covenant that God is preaching to us, to his people? Here it is. I want to dwell with you. I want to be with you. I want to be with you. This is a picture of God preaching that same message to his people. I want to be with you. But there's a way I'm going to be with you. I can't just be with you, right, because I'm a consuming fire. I'm holy. I'm pure. I'm perfect. If I show up, right, you're all goners. Your your good is gone. And so God makes this way in the old covenant. And then right over here along this little wall right here is this bread, is this table of bread. And it's known as the table of showbread or the bread of presence. And on that table, there were 12 loaves representing 12 tribes of, of Israel. And this was to symbolize the bread of God being provided for them, right? It was God's promise that he would always provide for his people. Now, some of you, you're having some flashes, right? Light, bread, presence, intercession, right? Now let's move into the Holy of Holies, a curtain, a thick curtain, massively thick, massively high. And then on the other side of it, the, 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 the mercy seat with these cherubims, with these angels, right? You can kind of see it very, that, that, that was sprinkled with blood on the day of atonement when the high priest would come in for the forgiveness of sins of people. And remember what I said, it was one day a year, Yom Kippur, the, the day of atonement. And I want to read this because I, I think we can just say that and say, yeah, well, man, wasn't that a special day? There was massive preparation for that one day. And I'm not even going to be able to get into all the preparation that that high priest would have went into. But it wasn't like, let's be honest, it wasn't like, oh man, it's 8.30, i got to be in the Holy of Holies at 9, so I need to kind of like clean myself up, right? No. Ray Dillard, he's an Old Testament scholar, uh, describes it like this. And I, I want to read it to you, and I want you to listen to the preparation. This is what the high priest would have done before entering into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. A week beforehand. The high priest was put into seclusion, taken away from his home and into a place where he was completely alone. Why? So he wouldn't accidentally touch or eat anything unclean. Clean food was brought to him, and throughout the week, he'd wash his body and prepare his heart. The night before the Day of Atonement, he didn't go to bed. He stayed up all night praying and reading God's word to purify his soul. Then on Yom Kippur, he bathed head to toe and dressed in pure, unstained white linen. Then he went into the Holy of Holies and offered an animal sacrifice. That's what we read about in Hebrews 9. To God to atone or pay the penalty for his, his own sins. After that, he came out and bathed completely again. And new white linen was put on him. And he went in again, this time sacrificing for the sins of the priests. And that's not all. He would come out a third time, and he bathed again, but this time from head to toe, and they dressed him in brand new pure linen. He then put on an ephod. Now, an ephod was, is probably what you think of when you think of the high priest, what he's wearing. It was full of all these jewels, and, and, and again, these were, these were representing the garden. 
that temple that, that Adam and Eve, because of sin, were thrust out of. They dwelled with God perfectly, but now have been thrown out because of sin. He puts this on to represent the 12 tribes of Israel, showing that they were on his heart. He was representing them. And he went into the Holy of Holies and atoned for the sins of the people. And Dillard continues, he said, this was all done in public. The temple, this, this place outside of this, imagine this, was crowded and those in attendance watched closely. There was a thin screen and he would bathe behind it, but the people were present. They saw him bathe, dress, go in and come back out. He was their representative before God. They were there cheering him on. They were very concerned to make sure that everything was done properly and with purity because he represented them before God. Think about that. Wouldn't you be concerned? Wouldn't you really want to make sure, all right, let's make sure this guy, because he's representing us to God. He's purified. He's making a way for our sins to be forgiven, right? Atoning work, right? I want to make sure he does it to a T. And so this was actually a public spectacle. And they cheer him on and they champion him. I mean, imagine that. Like, this is just such a foreign scene to us. And then after this, okay, they would do the ceremony of the, the scapegoat. Right? And we've talked about this in Hebrews where, where he would lay hands on one goat was sacrificed and the other he would lay hands on and would carry or be driven out into the wilderness as if to say that their sins have been carried away by the scapegoat. So all these ceremonies and regulations and arrangements for entering the presence of God. Quite a bit, right? And I just did that in about 12 minutes, okay? Quite a bit. And it, it makes me wonder how flippantly sometimes we enter into the presence of God. But I digress. Um, what does the author of Hebrews say about all this? Look at Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Oh no. All of these gifts, all of these processes, all of these procedures, all of these cleanings, all of these bathings, there is a problem. It cannot perfect. It cannot, in other words, make right, make holy, purify the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10, but it only deals with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body. All of these were exterior. And the issue with them all was this. It could only solve an exterior problem. It could not solve the heart of the issue. It could not get to the heart. Now, remember last week where I said, listen, the problem with the old covenant is not the old covenant. The old covenant was given by God. The problem with the old covenant is the people under the old covenant. Okay? This is not uh, calling us to, to just do away with it. No, it's calling us to get clarity on what it could do and what it couldn't do and why we need Jesus. Okay? Jesus did not come to clean us up on the exterior. He came in the time of reformation to completely overhaul what? Our hearts. To purify our conscience. And so listen to me. All that pomp and circumstance, it couldn't do one thing. The one thing we need, remove the guilt of our souls. 
that weight and that, sh- that weight of guilt and shame that I described early on that we all were nodding at, that we've all felt, that we've all experienced, whether you're a believer in here or you're not a believer in here, we're all going, yeah, I felt that. I know what you're talking about. I know a version of that. The problem with religiosity, the problem with the old covenant is that it could not answer the problem, the actual or true problem we have, that we are guilty before God and we need to be made pure. And then you have one of the most beautiful words in all of the Bible in verse 11. And I point this out every time we go through a book of the Bible and this word appears, the word but. Yeah, this system couldn't do it. This system was incomplete. It wasn't fulfilled. But then what does it say? But when Christ appeared. And I think that's where some of you started amening when I was reading. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, right? This was just a shadow tent, right? You put that picture, that's just a shadow of the substance of what? The true tent, right? The living tabernacle that I talked about last week, and that is Jesus Christ. And then it goes through all of the ways that Christ fulfills this, right? By the sprinkling of his own blood. You see, these symbols... The author says, they point to something. They were meant in the Old Testament. They were meant to, uh, you know, the, the Israelites to point to something greater, right? The Messiah that the scriptures were pointing to, it was meant to point to him. They all point to Christ. And this is why I love preaching the way that we do. This is why I love going through thick texts like Hebrews 9. It's because what I hope we're hearing as a community is that we're hearing how to actually study and interpret our Bibles, Okay. So that when we see texts like this or other texts in our Old Testament particularly, we'll see that all the prophets, all the miracles, all the kings, all the fiery furnaces, all the killing of giants, right? All of those things are shadows pointing to the substance who is Christ, right? So we'll never be guilty, I pray, as a community of looking at something like David and Goliath and going, you can slay your giant. You can't. You can't. Only Christ can, right? And that giant is sin, right? You and I, apart from Christ, are powerless to the guilt and shame and penalty of sin. We don't make it through the fiery furnace our own. We only make it through the fiery furnace. Why? Because Christ is present with us. See, when we begin to understand all of this, we begin to look at our Bibles and go, oh, this isn't a story about me. This is a story about God's glory manifested in Jesus Christ and his love toward us and welcoming us into that story. You see, the work of these earthly high priests all pointed to the work of Christ. And Tim Keller, um, he has a book called The King's Cross, and he uh, essentially takes what I just outlined and read to you about the Day of Atonement and that preparation, and he contrasts it with Jesus' final week of preparation. That he essentially was setting up the true day of atonement. And what I think he lays out is so beautiful. He says Jesus himself also began to prepare a week beforehand. How did he prepare? By riding in on a donkey. Oh, he stayed up, meaning Jesus, the night before. If you remember that scene, what was he doing? He was weeping in the garden of Gethsemane. Literally, he was sweating what were drops like blood. He said, but however, Christ wasn't clothed in rich garments like the Jewish high priest. He was stripped of the only garment he had. 
And instead of being cheered on by the people, the people didn't understand what he was doing in making purity for their sins. Instead, they jeered him, and he was abandoned by nearly everyone he loved. He wasn't bathed in a purifying pool. Instead, he was bathed in human spit. And when he came before God, he didn't receive words of encouragement. But what does the scripture say? That the father turned his face away. However, in Jesus, he put away our sin forever. Because he wasn't a sinful high priest making a sacrifice for his own sin, he was a perfect savior who came and became the sacrifice for our sin. He's the lampstand. John 8, I am the light of the world. He is the true table of bread. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He was the curtain who separated the people, who shielded the people from the presence of God, whose flesh was torn open so that we might have a way to be in God's presence. He, Jesus, was the true mercy seat. I love this in John. He paints this picture where it says in Jesus' tomb, there were two angels. I love this picture. One seated at the head and one seated where? At the foot. And that picture is meant to look like the mercy seat where the sprinkled blood would be to make atonement for sin. And the message is this. That new mercy seat is Jesus. That new mercy seat was vacated by the one who has power over death, hell, and the grave. That scapegoat that was driven out into the wilderness, Jesus is the one who carried away our sins forever. And listen, our sins, they're not merely covered over. They're gone. They're gone. And here's where I want to key in on, on verse 14, and we'll, we'll land here. This verse to me, if you can get a hold of this verse, it will change your life. Guilt and shame, get a hold of this verse. Verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more, how much more, more than the old sacrifices, more than all those days, more, more than, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, here it is, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. That is what we're searching for. The purification of our conscience, of our hearts, away from dead works to serve the living God. Now, this tells me two things, but I think there are three that we can see in this text about what Jesus does with our guilt, what he does with your guilt. And the first thing he does is this, is that he takes our guilt and transforms it to purity. So we, as the people of God, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus and his work, we go from guilty to purified. Now, like I said, Jesus does not simply cover our guilt or waive the penalty. He does away with our guilt forever. All of those who put faith and trust in Jesus. Now, how does that happen? How does in one man... All of the guilt of those who would put their faith and trust in Jesus. How does that happen? 
I don't know. <laughs> you don't hear a preacher say that very often, do you? I don't know. But I'm in good company with that. J.I. Packer, who's much smarter than me and uh, has written a lot, a lot of books and is very, just, just is incredible. He says this in his book, In My Place Condemned, he stood. He says this, How it is possible for Jesus to bear our penalty, we do not claim to know. Any more than we know how it was possible for him to be made man. But that he bore, it is the certainty, but he, that he bore our sin and our shame, it is the certainty on which all our hopes rest. So while we may not know exactly how he did this, we know this for sure, that he was 100% man and he was 100% God. And so he could actually be the satisfactory payment to God. He could also be the satisfactory payment for you and me, sinners. And so again, I can't tell you how it all works, but I know verse 22 of chapter 9, what it says, that there must be shed blood for the forgiveness of sins. And the blood that was shed was the perfect God-man Jesus. And so I stand, we stand on, on that confidence. And so hear me, those religions that try to teach that, that God can forgive sin or guilt or shame apart from the shed blood of Jesus Christ are simply put wrong. There's no way. There's not multiple ways to God, right? There, there, aren't, there, there isn't an eightfold path or five pillars or anything else. Blood is, the requ is required because it's the only way to remove guilt. But notice that that verse in verse 14 doesn't simply say that, that guilt is removed. It says, it, it goes positive, actually. It says that God does something to us. It says that he makes us pure, and here's where I think a lot of you get tripped up, or maybe you just haven't heard put this way, and it's going to free you. Forgiveness, and a lot of you are like, I know I've been forgiven of my sins. And that's right, right? You're released from the negative consequence or penalty of your sin. But purity, hear me, purity has a total different definition than forgiveness. Purity means that you are given an exalted position of righteousness, something you and I definitely didn't deserve. So yeah, it's one thing to go, I have been forgiven of my sin. And that is a true statement. It's a whole other thing to go, here's how Christ sees you, pure. Here's how God sees you, clean, spotless, blameless in his eyes, and gives you an exalted position of righteousness. How? Because you're given Jesus' record. You're given his purity. We've been clean. We've been dressed in white and made Pure. I love Justin Holcomb. He says this. He says, the gospel doesn't just have a negative side, right? The release of guilt and condemnation and wrath. It has a positive side. In Christ, hear this, you are loved, accepted, and innocent. That's who you are, Christ follower. That's what you're looking for. Woman, man, who's skeptical of God, you're looking for acceptance and love. You're looking for someone to, to give you true value. In Christ, you will find that worth that you're looking for. It doesn't just move us from guilt to purity. It moves us from dead works to loving service. Did you see that? Purify our conscience from dead works. That's what religion produces. Religion produces dead works. Religion is filled with all kinds of works. They're dead, right? Because the reason you're doing the good works was trying to get God to approve you. Trying to get closer to God by doing X. That is any, that's anything except, that's, that's everything that the gospel's against, Right? That you receive the gospel, no merit of your own, not because you worked for it. And in fact, if you're doing something good so that God will reward you, that's not loving God. 
That's actually loving yourself. Loving God is this, realizing and recognizing what he has done for you to rid you of your guilt and shame and trusting in that. And lastly, this moves us from dread to longing. You say, where that in verse 14? It's not. It's in verse 27 and 28. It's how this, this chapter ends. That you move from fearing God to fearing God. You say, well, what? You move from fearing God to fearing God. You see, there's a wrong kind of fear as a believer and a right kind of fear of God. You see, this is one of the biggest changes of the gospel when it hits our hearts and our minds is this, is that we used to have this sense of dread about God, but now the gospel gives us a love for God and a longing for him that we just sang about there at the end. Why would we long for God's, why would we long for the presence of a holy, righteous, perfect God who rightly should judge us and let's be honest, kill us if we ever touched his presence. Why would we ever long for that? Because there's been made a way for us to be in relationship with him. We long for that because we know in his presence, there is fullness of joy. In his presence, there's wholeness. In his presence, there's freedom. And we start to move from dreading that to craving that because we know that's the place we were built and designed to be. And through Christ, we, we get a little taste of that now. I think about this with, with my kids, right? I just got back from, from a trip uh, last week, right? And when, if you've traveled or you've been gone away from your kids on vacation, which is a really healthy practice, like, and, and then they see you, what do they do, right? My kids run out, right? And they're like, okay, I have young kids, okay? So don't ruin it for me, okay? I'm talking about your teenagers and what they do, okay? Like, my kids run out, and they're like, yeah, dad. Okay, they know I have gifts for them, but let's just, uh, assuming it's pure, okay? And they're like, dad, let me tell you about it. Let me, let me tell you about this. And it's just awesome. Now, take it on the other side. When they know I'm mad about something, some of you, that's how you're treating God, right? Stepping back, coming in, reserve, not longing for presence. Why? Because in your heart of hearts, you think that he's mad at you. You think in some way he's like upset with you or angry dad or something. I don't, I don't know. It's this guilt and this shame. And he goes, no, I have made you whole. I've purified through my son your conscience. That guilt and that shame is no more. It's on the cross. And so listen, we, go, we can be a people who go from fearing God, oh no, the dread, to longing to be with him more than anything else in the world. And then it's in being with him. It's, it's, it's in being in his presence. You know what melts away guilt and shame in my life? is the presence of God. The presence of God through his word when I read verses like verse 14 of chapter 9. Or when I'm with a body like this, worshiping and lifting our voices to King Jesus. And you come up. Um, we're going to take communion um, together. But before we do, um, you know, sometimes uh, I, I love the gift of music uh, that the Lord gives us. And, and this, is, this is a gift. We, we are incredibly blessed here as a community. Um, so I can throw songs like this at Sam very last minute, and he gladly obliges and sings them so well. Um, 
But I can remember the first time I heard this song, and, and Sam is probably going to be able to articulate in this song what took me 34 minutes to preach in three minutes, okay? Um, but that's the gift of music. And when I first heard this song, um, my wife and I were just talking about this, the first words, I was angry. And I was like, no, 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 what? No, no, that's not, that's not, no, what? Stop, sing. But listen to the song as it goes on. Okay, so that's what I was saying. Don't write the song off at the beginning because there's part of you, some of you in here are going to go, wait, no, no, stop, stop singing that, Sam. <laughs> Let it play out because this song is a perfect story of the arc and trajectory of all of our lives, if we're honest, with guilt and shame. And then after this song, I'm going to read two more verses and we're going to take communion together and celebrate Jesus, okay?
greater word saying over you and me. And that's the word of Jesus. This is what Revelation 12 says. That the voice of the accuser he's his name, literally Satan's name is the accuser of the brethren. The one who accuses day and night. Revelation says he will be silenced. His voice has been silenced by the blood of Jesus Christ. And so now the song being sang over you and me who have put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ is this. We're saved. We're made whole. We're pure. We're clean. We're loved. We're accepted. We're holy. Why? Because of Jesus. There's a new song. So all of the accusations, all of the truth, the true things the enemy throws at you, there's a truer and better word. And that is the word of Jesus Christ. You are forgiven and made pure. That's the word. There's the word of Christ. There is now no, no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And so stand with me. This is the power and the beauty of what we hold in our hands. The broken body represented in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. This is the power of the new covenant. This is why the fulfillment of the old is so much better, Hebrews says. is because it has the power to forgive and make pure, not just the outside, but the very conscience. That's Hebrews 9. Stop believing the age-old song of the enemy and start believing the message of Christ and the word of Christ to you and to me. And so this morning, we're going to take the bread together that was broken for you and me so that we might be made whole. Let's take it. 
the same way, the same night, Jesus took the cup and he told his disciples, this is before he died, this cup represents my blood that will be spilled for you. He said, this cup represents the what? The new covenant instituted by his blood. And so that's what we're living in light of, church. So let's take the cup together. only fitting response after taking communion is what, church? Worship. So let's worship our God in prayer right now. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the word that became flesh, your son, Jesus Christ, to forgive us, to redeem us, to make us pure and right, to clothe us with his righteousness and his holiness. Lord, I pray that you would free us as a community from guilt and shame in the power of the Holy Spirit, Lord God, that we would see who we are because of Christ and in Christ, and we would live in light of that, that the voice of the accuser, the voice of the enemy would grow faint in the voice and the shed blood of Jesus Christ that speaks a better word. So Lord, I pray that we would go from here, a people transformed by the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ to display your glory and your goodness to a watching world. We love you. We've been made pure. We are whole. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.